They say banks are boring, credit unions are dull. We don't agree, we love them all. Except for the big banks and neos who take a market share, make consumers blue. Need a fresh perspective, new direction. Take back banking and make some connections. If you feel stuck, it's not your fault. Here's an idea, try thinking outside the vaults. If you had to pick one type of guard to keep at your home 24-7, would you rather have a mall cop or a plainclothes air marshal? They're both security personnel who have one job, to protect your family and your possessions from thieves. The mall cop has a uniform with a utility belt and a badge, a guy who looks like his job is security. The air marshal appears to be another person who lives in the house, no different from a visiting relative. On the surface, anyway. Hi, I'm your host, Zach Garver, and you're listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast for community banks and credit unions. Back to security guards. I would pick the air marshal every time. It comes down to this. The purpose of a mall cop is to make would-be criminals or troublemakers think twice before they act. They're a threat deterrent, much the same as a security camera. The purpose of an air marshal is to have a serious operator on board if something goes horribly wrong. They actually mitigate the threats that pop up, but otherwise they're invisible, which helps keep passengers at ease. Both have a legitimate role to play in the security landscape, but there's no question about who provides the better security experience. A similar dynamic happens in the cybersecurity world, especially for financial institutions who are entrusted to protect consumer financial information and assets. So, we invited Casasa's Chief Information Security Officer, Hung Lee, to sit down and talk about cybersecurity threats and best practices. I think you may be surprised by what he has to say. And today, we're also joined by Andrew Swinney, a Senior Associate Product Manager with Casasa. I think you're really going to dig this conversation. Well, welcome to Thinking Outside the Vault. I have with me Hung Lee and Andrew Swinney, and we're going to be talking about cybersecurity today. And I'm really excited about this conversation. I've got some great stuff uh, in store for you. Uh, to start things off, I'd just like for you guys to introduce yourselves and uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do here at Casasa. Hung, you can go first. Hey, everyone. My name is Hung Lee, Chief Information Security Officer at Casasa. Been here about a year and a half, just really focusing on rebuilding the security program and just making sure that we provide the utmost security for all of our financial institutions and their consumers and still having fun every day. So, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm Andrew Swinney. I'm a senior associate product manager who works on the consumer applications for Casasa. So I get to figure out how consumers will interact with uh, the tools that we make, uh, specifically how we will help keep them secure. Awesome. So I think we'll, what we'll jump into today uh, is just how cybersecurity threats are shifting in the age of coronavirus, right? Like we can't get away from this giant global pandemic change. Um, how are, you know, malicious actors changing their approach right now? 
Yeah, so I, I think what we're really seeing is a natural evolution adaptation and accommodation to the current economic and social climate trends, right? And so what what I'm seeing, as well as several of my industry peers that I've talked to in this particular area, what we're seeing is really an exploitation of the human psyche. And what do I mean by that? So courtesy of of COVID-19 and all the other things that are happening in the world today, I would argue that people are essentially operating in a degraded mental state, right? Just due to stress and the proverbial new norm. And so Mm -hmm. courtesy of that, we're seeing a lot of attacks that really just are almost predatory in nature and are preying on this degraded mental state of mental and emotional state of of everyone. How do you see that? Can, can you give us an example of the, the types of an example of an attack like that? Yeah, certainly. So, so for example, I, everybody likes free money, right? And so that's, <laughs> that, that, that's a fact. Let's all acknowledge that. Right. And so back in the day, the, what you would essentially see are all of the scams where it's like, Hey, you just won the lottery or you just won X, Y, Z, right. Come visit the site fill out this form, provide your credentials, provide whatever identifying uh, piece of information, and you will get X prize. (laughs) Payment information, so we can drop your $2 million directly into your bank account, because that's what lotteries do. Exactly, (laughs) right. And so what we're essentially seeing with COVID today is a similar play to that, right? Where it's like, hey, I can give you a $100,000 loan at 0% interest, Right, because you're probably hurting right now. You may have gotten laid off. So therefore, why don't you come visit the site, fill out this information, and therefore I can give you this advanced loan with zero or zero to minimal interest, so on and so forth. Right. So again, it's it's a tried and true technique. However, it's been adapted to the current COVID climate. That's that's interesting. I, I whenever we talk about phishing, I I used to work at this agency and we were working on a new business pitch that was centered around like helping you with your social media. And I had written this joke in there about Nigerian princes. Like if your social media following is made up of hot local singles and Nigerian princes, you know you have a problem. And the pushback I got was like, we don't want to offend anybody. And I thought, wait, are you are you serious? <laughs> I don't even think there is such a thing as a Nigerian prince. Like th- this is, this should be obviously a joke. Why am I explaining this to you? But I think that's, you know, that there's something psychological that plays into that where it's like, obviously it works on enough people for them to, you know, put that, put that out there. Between, yeah. And it can seem silly, but obviously like they wouldn't keep doing it if it didn't work. Right. Absolutely. I mean, from a, from an attacker's perspective, they operate in terms of ROI models like you would not believe. Right. Everything is a numbers game to them. So if they can cast a wide enough net they, and get proper ROI, they will absolutely do that. I think what's interesting is all of us think oh, we'd never fall for that. You know, we kind of do paint some of these social engineering attempts as like very obvious, you know, you think you just suspect some poor grammar there something like that. And it's going to be something I don't fall for. Um, but I suspect that's probably not true that we could all fall victim to it. And so I'm curious, you know, specifically related to 
the current climate with COVID, um, and maybe from like a, a B2B perspective, ha- have you seen anything uh, or any attempts that, uh, I guess, hackers or whomever are trying to, to do to get like credentials for, for business profiles, something to that effect, like is something that we should be on guard for because it's a rising trend? Right. I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to account takeover, right? And so in answering your question, I'll kind of break it down into two parts. One, there's in what I call an A to C attack model, which is an, an attacker direct to consumer, right? And what we're really seeing around that is what we've already talked about in terms of the phishing, social engineering, and really preying on pe- people's current mental and emotional states. The second major attack that we're seeing is really what I call the attacker to business or or A to B model, right? And so what we've really seen in the last 12 to 18 months, especially in the financial services space, is credential stuffing, right? So credential stuffing, let me unpack that a little bit for you is over the course of time, and what I mean by the course of time is the last 10 to 15 years, various data hacks and leaks have essentially accumulated a treasure trove of online credentials, usernames and passwords to multiple sites across the entire globe, right? And these credentials are available for sale on the dark web for as little as 50 to 75 cents a piece, right? And so what we're essentially seeing is that people are going in and buying lots and high volumes of these leaked credentials and then stuffing them into online banking platforms, login user interfaces, right? And so I think that is another major attack that the financial services industry in particular is susceptible to because quite frankly, and I hate to admit this, right, but a lot of people do reuse their credentials across all of their sites. And what I mean by that is what their password is on, say, their Twitter or Instagram or basically their less sensitive sites. That's probably the same credential that they use on their FI site, right? And so that is where a lot of the exploitation comes in because if any of these other sites get hacked and those credentials are leaked, those same credentials can are likely reused on the more sensitive financial sites as well. Gotcha. What do you think the, what would you say is the responsibility that financial institutions have to their account holders when it comes to cybersecurity? I think there it's a twofold, right? I think there is an obligation and then more of a educational component. I think from a technical obligation perspective, just because credentials are still, or rather leaked credentials, are still the number one way to get into an online banking platform and execute account takeover, I think it's imperative that financial institutions offer some sort of multi-factor authentication to their end consumers, right? Whether that's, say, uh, SMS text or some sort of authenticator app or some sort of biometric, right? Just some sort of second factor authentication. I think that is absolutely the number one responsibility that every FI has to their consumers. Now, make no mistake about it, it should be optional, right? And so at the end of the day, it is the consumer's choice whether to activate it and use it, right? However, from a pure obligation and responsibility perspective, I believe every FI should extend that offering to their consumers. 
from a more educational perspective, I think there's some obligation there in terms of, say, blog posts or just online content, right? Because, I mean, like the example you, uh, you gave earlier, I mean, there are a lot of people out there that are still not very tech savvy or security savvy. Now, mm -hmm. there has been a lot of progress in that regard over the course of the last 20 years, courtesy of all the breaches and data leaks and hacks and Edward Snowden NSA stuff making public headlines. So I would say compared to 20 years ago, we've come a long, long way in terms of just general education and savviness around this. However, we still have a ways to go. Yeah. My question might kind of take you out of a comfort zone or something you don't want to really like advise on. But, you know, you mentioned that one of the things that I guess malicious actors prey on is the fact that people are kind of lazy and that we're not tech savvy, right? So like we're going to use the same password for our Twitter account that has very little value as we do for uh, our banking account. And, you know, I saw even yesterday that uh, there's a lot of celebrity uh, Twitter accounts that were hacked. Like, Oh, I uh, saw that too. Yeah, like Bill Gates and they were like, using to get like Bitcoin. And it, it was just a crazy story. And maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. But going to consumers, you know, like having maybe that weaker entry point like Twitter and then that being uh, expanded upon and used to get other other account access. Um, what, what, what should consumers be doing? Or like what are the things that like simple steps that everyone should take. I'm, I'm guessing like change your passwords, use different mm -hmm. passwords and have a plan to update them every X number of months. But are there other products or practices you think that like just everyone should know and make kind of a, a typical uh, like, I don't know, data hygiene or, or something like we do right. just to protect ourselves on a regular basis? Yeah, no, I, and that, that's a fantastic question, right? And I, I think I am a huge proponent of simplicity Right, because at the end of the day, complexity is the number one enemy to security. Right? Some people might argue that convenience is the number one enemy to security. I would disagree with that and challenge that all day. I would say, wow, I would say that's a, that's a great point. <laughs> I, I would say complexity is the biggest challenge and hurdle to security because, quite frankly, if you stand up a new security solution or you evangelize something that's way too complex, nobody will adopt it, at which point you have zero security, right? So with that said, I would say keep it simple, right? I would say take all of your accounts, right? So whether it's Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, your financial institutions, your credit card, so on and so forth, right? Just have an inventory of your online accounts. And I would say just pick out two passwords. Right. One simple, simpler password for your less sensitive accounts. Right. And then a more complex password for your your more sensitive accounts. It's anything that has to do with financials. Right. And then on top of that, as far as anything that it really falls into that financial block of accounts, if there is an MFA multi-factor authentication option, enable it and use it. Right. I, I think that would be my personal and professional advice to anyone out there that really wants to execute pretty solid security hygiene. What do you on that note? Because I think that's I mean, I think this is an area where, you know, FIs can have a position of trust. Right. And can make make recommendations to their account holders. Uh, what are your feelings on some of the built-in password management tools? Uh, you know, uh, Apple has one. You know, across their you know mobile devices, 
Google has it built into Chrome. I actually don't know if, if whatever Windows is using for their you know standard browser now, if that, if that has a built-in option. But what, do you, what are your feelings about those? My general sentiment towards the various password vaults is that they are very useful tools, right? And that is probably the best Fort Knox level security hygiene that you can have, right? Where you have, let's say you have 25 different accounts, online accounts, and therefore you have 25 different passwords that are all 30 characters in length and each one of them is stored in your password vault, right? I think that's great. However, at the same time, I also think that's very, very complex and therefore makes it hard for people to actually adopt, right? So what I would actually be in bigger favor of is something along the lines of, say, a a biometric authentication method where, for example, if you're logging into your financial institution's mobile app, right, if you can leverage, say, the fingerprint scanner on your mobile device in order to log into that mobile app, I mean, I think that is a fantastic way to really strike that equilibrium point and that balance point between convenience and security, at which point that really leads into what I consider the holy grail of security, which is transparency, right? Where it's it's there, you feel secure, however, you're not feeling the pain and agony of super rigid security. The friction is 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 way lower. It's, you know, I would never have guessed that <laughs> to hear you say friction. Uh, that's 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 a word right there. Friction. That the transparency is is that holy grail of security. But I mean, it does make sense. I say this about other things. You know, that they're like it. If it's working really well, you have no idea it's there at all. Right. You know, be that like civil engineering, right? Or in, in my case, working with a lot of designers like typography. People don't even realize how you know, a typeface, it affects your experience of something, but that's, it's interesting to think about that with security because it, I definitely admit to falling into the, the trap of like, Oh, I need complexity and I need to create layers. Like that's how I've got to, you know, that's how I'm going to do this. But then, you know, I've added my own friction and my own frustration, um, to, to whatever that experience is. And and my wife is on the other side. She's like, just make it simple. Please Mm -hmm. just don't, ask me to like have a crazy password I have to remember because I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> right, right. And, and, ju- and just, I'm going to insert an, an example from more of the physical security realm into the conversation, right? So Disney World, Disneyland, I'm sure many listeners to this podcast have attended one of those or visited one of those venues in their lifetime, right? And mm-hmm. so when you go into Disney Disney World or Disneyland, Disneyland, are you really worried about your security? Probably not, right? You probably feel relatively secure because if you didn't, you probably wouldn't take your kids there with you, right? Right. But with that being said, if you really dive behind the scenes into the amount of physical security in terms of surveillance and number of cameras and really the strategic thought that went into designing the security of a Disney World I mean, that is mind-blowing, right? And I think that is a great example 
of a corporation that really put a lot of mental calories into this concept of transparent security, where you go there and you feel secure, right? However, you don't really feel the friction of the security of thousands of cameras, like watching every move to ensure the safety of you, your family, your children, and your friends. That's interesting. I feel like there's there's that trend, right? Which is this, there, there's a lot of security there, but you don't feel it. It feels frictionless. But I feel like there's also um, environments like, I'll, I'll just call on Facebook, that you think are secure, that you feel safe in, and perhaps you overshare. And mm-hmm. that is actually the vulnerability. So there's like this, this idea, there's these platforms that feel frictionless and they're actually really, really secure. And other ones that people assume are private and secure. And so they maybe talk or divulge things that, that aren't, and they can kind of become victim to. And, and I think that when we think about security, we often imagine some coder, you know, and they're typing all this stuff and it's really high tech, but hey, so hey, don't you forget know. hoodie. You, you have to remember the hoodie. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's 12 monitors. They're all green. Exactly. Yeah. But most things are surprisingly low tech. Right. And mm-hmm. so I guess I, I'm curious, you know, we, we can think about changing our passwords. We can think about maybe using a VPN or some sort of password database. But um, what, what's your take on, on some of like ha- people's responsibilities or things they should know in just managing their own data and having some responsibility for kind of what they're putting out there? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. My general thought on this is that if you're not willing to put it, like actually write this piece of data on a piece of cardboard and put it in your front lawn for everybody to see, right? Then don't share it. That would actually be my litmus test, right? Are you willing to post this as a physical sign in your front lawn? If if the answer is yes, then go ahead and share it. If the answer is no, then don't share it. Right. So that is such an interesting mental model. I mean, that puts it in stark relief. Like there's lots of, I mean, I feel guilty of that myself. I'm like, Oh, well, I'm just putting it here on Facebook. Like it's cool. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, yeah, to Zach's point, right? Like if you use that mental framework as a litmus test, I think that'll really challenge a lot of the things that you actually do post onto these various platforms. It's like, wait a second, would I put that on my front lawn for everybody to see? Right. So try, try, try that tomorrow. Help try it later today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to I want to go back a little bit just to talking about the responsibility that institutions have and, and how they may approach that. I mean, so we serve a, a wide spectrum of institutions from you know this very you know local single branch operations up to you know some of the semi regionals and and I wonder what on that on that you know on the more local end of that spectrum like. It, how should they try to respond to these kinds of serious security threats? I mean, it seems to me like it would take a lot of resources. So what options do they have available to them? I think when it comes to smaller financial institutions, right, I I believe that leveraging a technology service provider specifically for their online banking platform is a key strategic initiative for them and they should essentially adopt this so that they can get a lot more access to these security controls because to your point zach having a one or two person it shop to defend this fi against 
God knows how big the actual armies of organized crimes crime are, right? I I don't think that really scales, right? Yeah. And so I, I think that's really where leveraging an online banking provider comes comes into play, where they have the manpower, the technology, the processes, the general sophistication and knowledge around what these attacks looks look like what mitigation strategies to actually deploy. I think that's really where the biggest bang for the buck is in terms of actually protecting these smaller FIs consumers. Well, yeah, that, that's helpful. And it seems like there's there's a little bit of um, you know, radical honesty that that everybody like could benefit from uh, thinking of. I had a recent conversation with my dad and he called me up and was asking me about Zoom because he'd read this article that said that Zoom was malware. And <laughs> and so I got into explaining to him that like, I'm not sure if it's malware. I'm pretty sure it's not. But like just based on what my usage of it and that like the I, I even read the article he sent me and, and they, they were bending that term pretty heavily in order to make it fit <laughs> calling zoom malware. Uh, but my point to him was like, Hey, I mean, you know, a couple weeks ago, this was back, you know, maybe, maybe a month or so into, into the pandemic. I was like, you know, not that long ago, they were just rolling along with their, however many million users and, and it was working. Everything they were doing work, it was working. They probably had stuff they were trying to fix, but there was not that sense of urgency. And then overnight their user base exploded and the level of scrutiny and, and the number of people like even trying to look for ways to sort of break their system just ballooned. And there's nobody like who, no business that could have been prepared for that level of change. And like, you can, you can say, Oh, they didn't do their due diligence, but you cannot like that. I feel like that's just a reality of being a small company and trying to get bigger is like, you, you don't have it all fixed. Mm -hmm. at once, you know, and, and I made the point to him too. I was like, look, security has always been this, it's always been easier and cheaper to break a security system than it's been to build one that's unbreakable. You know, you look at medieval castles, like that, you know, the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars put into these fortresses. And it's like with, you know, some dynamite and the right siege equipment, like it's all over, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> which is why that model got abandoned because right. it was too expensive. Um, you know, and essentially it's like, he was like, well, I think I'm just going to wait until, you know, there's a more secure option out there. And it's like, dad, uh, if <laughs> you wait for the perfect security, you know, app with the perfect security, like it's never coming. Mm -hmm. It just isn't right. You know, because of that dynamic. Right. And, and quite, quite frankly, I think what you're, what we really saw with the entire zoom situation is a classic security principle of following the money. Right. And that's essentially ties back to what I said earlier in this conversation about how attackers, they really do put a lot of mental calories into their overall attack strategy, as well as their ROI models. Right. I know it sounds absolutely insane that I'm talking, I'm using the term ROI with attackers, but this is a business for them, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like this is like these organized crime syndicates, they have CEOs, CFOs and whatnot. Right. And I'm not, I'm not joking with you about that. Right. And so essentially what happened with zoom is like you alluded to when more users go onto that platform, it becomes a richer target. 
right? And when it becomes a richer target, that's when the attackers swarm in. And as far as the vulnerabilities go on Zoom, and quite frankly, any other piece of software, the vulnerabilities are always there, right? So what we saw so, several years ago, what, before Mac, for example, really became prevalent and ubiquitous throughout corporate America, there was a big focus on Microsoft Windows and how, oh, Microsoft Windows it has all of these vulnerabilities that, oh, Mac, Mac OS X, it's vulnerability-free. You don't even need to run antivirus on Mac because, well, mm -hmm. there are no vulnerabilities there, right? Well, that was the myth that got created because... Quite frankly, what attackers were doing were they were following the money and really going after the target-rich endpoints of Microsoft Windows. Fast forward about 10, about 10 years, and suddenly we're not looking at, like say, a 90-10 split or 80-20 split between Mac and Windows in corporate America anymore. We're looking at more like a 50-50 split, right? And suddenly, mm -hmm. wait a second. Why is Mac suddenly having all of these vulnerabilities? Well, no, the vulnerabilities were always there. The attackers just weren't putting in their due diligence to discover them and exploit them, right? <laughs> so, so that that's a that's a very in, that that's a very intricate way of thinking about where and where the risk is, right? Just go just go wherever the user users are and that is going to be your next target in terms of a overall risk model. It sounds like even Zach your analogy of like the castle seems like kind of we've always been on the defense against these attackers and that um, you know, you kind of wait for them to find something to exploit and then you respond and try to shore up your walls to protect against it. I guess I'm curious, like what are, what has your attention right now? I'm not asking you to give, you know, uh, attackers ideas, but what is something that you think is maybe under discussed or you're paying a lot of attention to um, as a trend of tomorrow? You're paying the, the podcast a huge compliment. It would make me so happy if hackers were listening to my podcast. <laughs> 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 you would be surprised, Zach. You would be surprised. I, I think something that's a hot topic that it has gained a lot of traction this year, right, is just data privacy in general, right? So as you guys are probably aware, California, they released the CCPA regulation, right, that really went into effect this year. And I think that really sheds a whole new light on what consumers are really expecting from a data privacy perspective. So, Andrew, this really ties back to what you said earlier about just generally speaking, people are like, well, Facebook, for example, it feels like a safe and secure platform. So therefore, I will share more, right? Well, it might be secure. However, is it private? Right. And so that's when we get into this interesting delineation and bifurcation between security versus privacy, because they're they're not the same. Right. They definitely are complementary components with one another. And I have the utmost confidence in Facebook's security. Right. And that they are defending your data from the hackers getting into it. Right. But what are they doing from a privacy hygiene perspective? So I think data privacy, that's probably the next big thing that's going to have a lot of change and evolution over the next 10 years if I were to peer into Hung's crystal ball here. 
Interesting. I want to I want to pivot the conversation a little bit to to talk about partner integrations. Um, we are a, a technology partner. You know, so we're in this category, but I also know that, uh, you know, community banks and credit unions rely on third party vendors to, you know, bring in new products and support infrastructure and do all of these things. Um, and all of this pr- probably inject, a, you know, more risk and, and more complexity, as you were saying, in, in, into the system. How do you recommend that institutions approach these kinds of partnerships in order to, to protect themselves and their consumers? Yeah, no, that, that, that's another fantastic question, Zach. So from a partner integration perspective, I think the very first step is just acknowledging that partners are a part of your ecosystem and a part of your data supply chain. Right. I think that's the first piece of it. And once you wrap your head around that, I think what you really start doing is pivoting into this concept of holding them accountable for having the proper security and privacy hygiene as well. Right. And so a lot of this, you may have heard the term vendor management or vendor due diligence. Mm -hmm. So those two terms are essentially a methodology in which companies such as us, right, or other companies holding us accountable as their their uh, vendor, right? Just really evaluating our security and privacy controls and making sure that what we are doing is not creating risk for others, right? And the same way we would evaluate other vendors and making sure that as we review, say, their annual SOC reports or their annual vulnerability scans or their annual or periodic penetration tests, right, that if there really are any major deficiencies, I think it's absolutely A-OK to have the conversation of, hey, we saw that as part of your prior year audit, you had these particular findings or observations or exceptions. Where are you in the remediation of those? I think that is a very mature conversation, right, that needs to be had between us and vendors or just between partners in general, right? Because at the end of the day, and I'm a firm believer in this, our vendors, they need to live up to our security hygiene. We cannot be brought down to theirs. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think it, it it's a maybe a, even it could be a difficult switch for people to flip because that scrutiny could feel critical or, or aggressive. But, you know, part of the culture of Kasasa is the patch values, one of which is love and one of the subcategories of, of the love value is loving communication, which mm-hmm. isn't just about affirming and making making people feel good, but it's about being willing to say hard things, ask hard questions, give constructive feedback and and help people get better. Right. Um, and, you know, not everybody, everybody is going to be receptive to that, but I, you know, it certainly feels like a healthier way to approach things is, is to be willing to apply that scrutiny and, and to say it out of a place of love and saying, look, like if you want to be a partner, here's, you know, here's some expectations. Right. Absolutely. And I think something that really resonates with me here is just when, and this applies to every type of communication, right? Like be kind, not nice. 
right? <laughs> there, there is a very dip, big difference between being kind and being nice. And I am kind to my vendors and I definitely do hold them accountable and to these expectations, right? And quite frankly, as the head of security for Kasasa, I have to hold them accountable for this because you may or may not have heard of these statistics, but anywhere between 60 to up to 80% of security breaches occur via third-party vendors, right? Wow. So, so even, even <laughs> That's the, almost frightening. Right. I mean, think about that for it for a moment, right? So four out of five data leaks or data breaches, it's not even a hacker like traversing your moat and getting into your castle, right? It's not even that complicated. It's basically you share data with a third party, right? That is your partner. And then something goes awry with that partner. That's four out of five data breaches, right? So even the major target breach from the early 2010s, like, I don't know if you guys recall this, but that was due to a vulnerability that was exploited with Target's HVAC vendor. Their <laughs> AC partner got hacked, and that was the springboard into hacking Target. That's right? incredible. So, so, yes, partner integrations, vendor management, vendor due diligence. If your partners and vendors are the weakest link in your security chain, Man, that's that's a tough, tough problem to solve, right? Sounds like it puts it, it, the need for having uh, someone in your organization who you know handles vendor management from a more focused standpoint and is able to put the time behind the scrutiny. Like, it sounds like most people are probably behind the curve on that, and, and the need is only going to get greater. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Just because, uh, again, it's and this really has to do with the new way of the world. Right. And what I mean by the new way of the world is this hyper connectivity between SaaS applications, consumers, businesses, data sharing. Right. I mean, we, we no. We're not operating in islands anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is sharing stuff with everybody, right? And so there's a lot, courtesy of this hyperconnectivity, it really makes this entire vendor management and vendor due diligence play even more critical just because of this interdependence, which is another Kasasa patch value, right? This yeah. giant interdependence between us and our vendors and their vendors, right? Because they may share this data even further downstream. You're talking about sort of the new way of the world and the connectivity. I know that speed obviously is another kind of trend that is just driving the future. Um, and from a product perspective, um, you know, one of the things that I see facilitating that is the movement to the cloud. Um, mm -hmm. But I know that there's like a lot of concern, uh, a lot of myths about that. So I, I guess... Um, it's a huge topic, but trying to tackle it lightly, like what is the, are, are there genuine concerns about moving some of your services to the cloud um, and what's valid there and what's not valid? Yeah. So first and foremost, I think it is absolutely imperative that we acknowledge this concern from financial institutions, right? Because what, when it comes to just being risk averse, I think that is definitely a very real sentiment that our own financial institutions have articulated to us. So acknowledgement of that is first and foremost. 
Secondly, just based on what I myself have experienced chatting with our various financial institutions, this is a highly divisive topic, right? I, and I have had conversations with certain FI execs that have said, hey, we're okay going to the cloud. However, let's have a conversation around what security controls you have in place to mitigate the risk of this data leaving our possession and going to someplace else, right? That's one conversation that I am happy to have all day, right? On the other hand, there are other financial institutions that, quite frankly, for them, this is the classic fear of the unknown, right? They have never had any of their data in the cloud. They have never actually touched the cloud before. So this is just one big nebulous blob for them, right? And so I think, again, acknowledging that the fear is real is absolutely point number one. And number two, in terms of that second camp of or of thought where it's like, hey, I don't really know what this is, so therefore I don't want to do it. I think reassuring the financial institutions that we're on this journey together with them goes a long way, right? And really convincing them and earning their trust, right? First and foremost, because at the end of the day, we're all human beings and the very fabric that weaves human beings together is trust, right? So A, earn their trust, and B, once you earn their trust, just letting them know that we will treat their data as seriously and secure it as carefully as if it was our own data, right? So I think those are kind of the two key pieces of that equation. I'm not sure if you would agree with this, but for me, so it feels like um, kind of an inevitability. It seems like eventually, you know, you're going to have to have that conversation anyway. You're going to have to have a strategy around it. It's not really something that if you're going to continue to do business in today's age that you, you don't have to address. Is that is that fair or um, do you think I'm kind of oversimplifying it? I, I think that there are a couple ways to look at that, right? So there will always be certain corporations that elect to have a physical data center, right? Or what is more commonly known as a private cloud, right? So, and it, it all really comes down to the risk appetite of that particular organization, right? So if they're board of directors or their senior executive team, they are just highly risk averse, then yeah, they will always have a physical data center that they can walk into, that will have their own cage of, a cage of servers, right? And I think there will always be a place for that, right? But to your point, I think the flip side is that we are absolutely seeing higher and higher public cloud adoption, whether it's AWS, Microsoft Azure, or Google Cloud Platform. And I think a lot of that is attributed to the fact that these three major players in the public cloud space are really stepping up and making their security controls better, right? And really giving corporations such as Kasasa the tools to be successful in those environments as well. So I, I, I would say I see both sides of that particular coin. Yeah, so this is something that I often bring up in the podcast is just thinking about it from the standpoint of uh, you know what, I, I think my team can do it. We're going to make this all happen in-house. 
um, you know, and, and what all goes into that. Um, and it, it seems actually a little bit different in this case, because usually, you know, maybe we're talking about bringing out a new loans product or, or, you know, some, you know, developing new products in house is, is a t- typically a very hard task to, to take on, uh, with an internal team marketing kind of a, a lot of FIs have marketing teams, but you know, various level, varying levels of sophistication. Um, it seems like just from what I'm hearing you say, like most institutions, um, who are a little further back in the like tech adoption curve probably have an onsite server. So they're already sort of doing this on their own, but if they're going to move forward and, and adopt new technologies and, and reach new consumers with the kinds of, of convenience that consumers are asking for, is it, is it feasible for them to do that on their own? I, I think it's, it's feasible, but extremely difficult, right? So this kind of ties back to what I mentioned earlier in the conversation about smaller vendors and really leveraging technology service providers, right? Because if you're a, for example, a 50-person FI and you're trying to run an online banking platform on your own, that that is a tough, tough ask for that one or two-person IT team. Right, who then mm-hmm. has to double down as their security team as well, and you're putting one or two people against a ten thousand person army of attackers, right? I mean that, that with, is, a, with an infinite army of virtual machines, right? right? Exactly, exactly, right. And so, so at the end of the day, anything is feasible. It's just really for me when it comes to the entire cloud conversation. It's finding that balance point between innovation, security, and risk, right? Because whenever you move faster or you adopt new things, there are going to be disruptions, and disruptions always cause new risk, right? At which point that risk needs to get contained or mitigated via security controls, right? And so I think that is kind of my three-legged stool for this entire cloud conversation is how can FIs embrace that innovation, adopt new risk while implementing new security controls to mitigate and contain that risk? Yeah, that's that's really good. I think it sounds like we could probably have uh, a much deeper conversation about uh, you know the cloud and and what it means for institutions. Um, I think we'll probably have to have you back on the uh, podcast to dive into it. Maybe we'll devote a whole episode at least to that. Um, I wonder. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to work on this question, Andrew. If you've got something else yeah, teed up, go for it. Um, Yeah. I mean, my question would be, let's say like I'm super interested in security, both personally and maybe from like a a business perspective, you know, obviously being on the product team, I like to stay up on trends. Um, but I, I don't want to go into the same depth that you would go. What's a way for me just to stay informed about some of the evolving risks. I think there's the, you know, speed of business increases, probably the attackers are going to outpace us a little bit too. So as a consumer and as someone who works with digital products, like what are some resources out there that I can, I could be using to stay on top of this? Right. You're right. No, fantastic question. Now, I think one of the very easy ways is just, there are a ton of security specific blogs out there, 
right? And so one of the ones that I really like, it's actually by an antivirus vendor called Sophos. And, it, mm-hmm. and the name of the blog is Naked Security. So if you go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com, I've been following this blog for God knows I've lost track, right? But they also do a podcast as well. And so they, uh, I'm, I'm on their page right now and they even have a posting already about the giant sig red vulnerability that just got published by microsoft two days ago right and so if you really want to stay up to date like this is actually my personal blog that i follow religiously well we'll put a link to that in the show notes sounds like it kind of ties in with that whole idea of uh transparency and security which seems like you know, like in, in, in the invisibleness of it, like how can we make this, you know, sort of fade into the background of, of the user experience, you know, while still doing its job. Right. I think another piece to add to that would be just be willing to have conversations about security with people, right? And so just throughout the last 20 years of being in this field, what I've discovered is that a lot of people are either embarrassed or ashamed of having security conversations with people because they're they're afraid to ask what is might be deemed a stupid or ignorant question and quite frankly and i've said this before right the only stupid and ignorant questions in the security realm are the ones that go unasked right Mm. so if you have a resource in your network or at your company and you're you just want to know more hey ask them right i I think that's the number that's probably even more important than following some blog is just be willing to have conversations with people because what i've discovered in terms of just general security practitioners is that we love talking about this particular subject Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten into the field, right? <laughs> so, like, we love talking about the topic, right? And so, yeah, let, let's just have the conversation and there are no stupid questions. Yeah, I think that is a, a great point for us to just wrap up on. Hung, I really appreciate your time. This has been such a rich episode. Um, I think there's a lot of value in here for our listeners. And uh, this has been great. I look forward to having you on the podcast uh, in the future. I think we got a lot more that we can unpack here. Looking forward to it. There are two ways to think about transparency. One is highly visible or obvious, and the other is all but invisible. The goal for any community financial institution should be to create systems that are both highly secure and non-intrusive to the user experience. This is way harder than I'm making it sound which is why Hung referred to it as the Holy Grail. And like the quest for the Holy Grail, it's a journey that you embark on, continually seeking improvement. Let me encourage you, the best time to start this journey is today. Your account holders will thank you for being proactive about protecting their most valuable information. Thanks again for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced and distributed by Kasasa. Our theme music was written by Victoria Kerr, who also serves as our production assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leaving a review. It helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at casasa.com.